Ready, Nick? Let's do it. All right, everybody, talk about it outdoors live from the Wilson studio. Nick and Alex ready to kick it up and kick it loud. We got a fun one lined up for you tonight. This gentleman has got his own podcast, and I promise you, if there's anything Nick that I could do better at, it's to be a little more like him. Y'all pull up a chair and set a while. Y'all going to enjoy this one. Nicholas, we're rolling right on into January. The Georgia deer season's wrapping up for most everybody that hunts around the state. We do got some uh, lingering counties in the extended archery season, and I don't know that I'm going to be one of those lingering hunters that are getting out in it the way the weather's been as of late. Buddy, my stuff is put up, and I'm on the small game season. We're running dogs now. Oh, it's rabbit season in Georgia, and Nick has got the dogs fired up. Yes, sir. Buddy, are you uh, are you more excited for rabbit season to get here or that now that deer season is over, you can start focusing on turkey hunting? Hey, you brought it up, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to have to. I've just got to accept it. Over the last year, I've learned something about you. You got two weeks, like you said, of November deer season. He got three months of spring turkey hunting he's looking forward to. Book, I remember that, didn't I? <laughs> booking trips, baby. Booking trips. <laughs> well, it's predator season for old Alex, and uh, I tell you what, it has got kicked off in a big way for me. Saturday night – Nobody knows what that is in podcast land, but we'll say this past Saturday night, went out and thumped on a bobcat for the first time in my life. Killed my first bobcat, a 21-pounder. Me and Josh Townsend went out, and uh, we knocked down two coyotes under the thermals, and i tell you what, I'm probably as excited as that as I've been since I knocked down that big old buck back in November in Illinois. I can tell, man. It was good. It was uh, some good footage that um, you got, hopefully. To put in a video soon, <laughs> and they come out through there, man. That's that's fun to watch that. Like, I don't have no desire to go do it with you. I'd like to go just sit and watch it. But well, I can tell you this: if everything works out for what I've I got, I don't need another over, hobby. <laughs> but don't get that one because it is a very expensive one for sure. And if I can tell you anything that's been exciting about it for me, us going to other states, I never would have dreamed I'd have the opportunity to go and hunt coyotes in other states and. Over the course of the next six weeks, I've got several trips lined up that I'm very excited for, and I hope to be able to share that, you know, with you on some videos for sure. I hope so, man. That'd be that's be some good footage. Well, let's get right into it because tonight's guest, I, I, I'm I'm a little bit awestruck, and I don't want him to think I say that because I, I've really focused a lot on listening to the way that he speaks and the way that he delivers himself to me has been it's been an almost a emulation that i would like to spend more time for myself to try to do because from humble beginnings and by well-versed design tonight's guest comes to us with a charismatic philosophy any hunter should strive to emulate his articulate speech melancholy rapport and exuberant process and all that he does will make any outdoorsman envious it is indeed an honor and a privilege to welcome to talk about it outdoors tonight Truth from the Stand host, Mr. Clint Campbell. What's going on, fellas? Thanks for having me. I pre- man, I don't know that I've ever been uh, waxed poetic like that before. So uh, <laughs> it could be a back a little bit. I do that to some of my guests when they come on, you know, as far as, you know, their accolades and, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, the guys that I look up to, and, but I've never had anyone do that to me. So uh, I, I appreciate the kind words. Hopefully I don't let you all down. Well, I'm sure you won't. And and when I say that, it comes with me being able to experience and read some of your writing and see some of the things that you've done. And I love to write myself. And 
I would love one day to be in an, an outdoor writer of some capacity, whether it be for a magazine or whatever it does. But I always find it neat to talk to people that are writers because there's a delivery to it. I take it all the way back to when we had Don Higgins on. Don just has a way of speaking, and he he's written so many articles and so many stories over the years. It's neat to see the picture painted in words that you can't put on camera. And we can all film and everything, but going back to the root of of where we all began, reading and writing was the first form of of imagination that we could have as kids growing up. And to me, there's a way of painting it that you do a very good job at. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I certainly don't fancy myself necessarily a writer. It's funny that um, uh, it, the, the podcast really kind of started, or <clears throat> the genesis of it really was, I, I was blogging on my own to kind of start. And, you know, writing something for me that I just don't like to read poorly written stuff, I guess would be one way to say it. And I, and I was taking such like, such time and painstaking time to try to get things right and then have my my wife who's an awesome writer kind of take a look at it and 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 be my editor essentially and stuff like that and it would take me so long to produce a piece where i was like i have more to say and i have more interest in having more conversations than i could possibly write quickly enough to kind of to have those those interactions and so i was like there's got to be a better way and so my background was really as a musician you know, that's what I did for a bunch of years was tour and, you know, worked in recording studios and stuff like that. And I was like, man, I'm pretty comfortable behind a microphone. You know, I was like, and I'm really good at the studio equipment. I was like, maybe I should start a podcast. And that was literally all the, (laughs) that was really all the forethought that I had for it was literally that internal dialogue, that internal conversation that I had. Um, But I do still like to write from time to time because I think what writing does for me and I, too, just my hunts and stuff like that. It's a habit I got into recently, actually, because a lot of my good buddies who I have a lot of respect for and look up to do a lot of journaling throughout the season. Um, is really just a way for me to kind of pause and reflect on what it is I'm going to write about. Like you have to have a deeper sense of thought if you're going to articulate it in the written word, you know. And so that's the one thing I always kind of appreciated that I wish I had more time to do because you know, um, it really makes you take that time to fully understand what it is you're trying to say and how you want to communicate something and how you want something to come, come off. And then you usually walk away with a little bit of a deeper kind of sense of it and a deeper, and it has a little bit more of a deeper meaning to you once you kind of get it, once you kind of get it done or get it wrapped up because you've really had time to be introspective with whatever the topic is. And, um, I'm just not quick enough at it to do it often enough, I guess. Well, and, and, and a gentleman told me one time about writing, he said, never use a pencil. And I was like, why? He said, you're not going to make a mistake quickly when you're writing your thoughts down. He said, you can always go back and write a line through it or circle it. He said, but don't use a pencil and don't erase it. He said, because though usually the first thing that comes to your mind when it's quick and out there is what you're trying to say. And you don't want to change that because you take the emotion out of it once you change it. Yeah, it, I 100% believe that. And I didn't learn that in writing so much as I did being a musician. Because uh, yeah. It was a lot of times whenever I would try to perfect something is whenever it would kind of zap that like feeling that you get when you see a band live or see something performed live. There's like an energy about it. And it's the same thing with writing. Like that first intuition, that gut instinct, it's just like bow hunting. Like how many times have you walked into an area where you, you know, outthought yourself out of a place and lo and behold, maybe you got a camera in there or whatever. And like, lo and behold, that's the spot you should have been, you know, or that was, that was the the spot. There was something that was telling you that, you know. And it's the same thing with, you know, not to get all hoity-toity, but it's the same thing with art. Like, it's an expression. And, like, when you start to take the emotion 
and the execution becomes the 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 focus as opposed to the the uh, the intention behind it might be one way to say it. You kind of remove all the stuff that was good about it to begin with. You know, I used to have a trick with my drummer, awesome drummer, like one of the best drummers I've ever played with. And uh, but anytime he knew the red light was on a recording, like he just he like he played differently. So I started doing just like uh, what I would call like rehearsal takes with him, you know, full song rehearsal takes. And we would do like two or three to kind of warm up. And then I would let him record one like he thought we were recording, but I would always use the the rough take because it was always it might have had some small imperfections, but like the, the, the emotion was there, like the the intention was there, you know, and we got to a point where we started recording everything live. You know, and then we would go back and overdub like certain parts and stuff like that. But like the bulk of like the songs were recorded, like the meat of it was always recorded live because we would just get a better performance that way. And I feel it's the same way with bow hunting and writing, like whatever it is. I think when you when you when you've prepared. When your preparation meets opportunity, that's whenever the magic happens. Right. And so as long as you're prepared, I don't think you need to overthink it. I think you just need to do what you've prepared to do. Yeah. And that's it's crazy to hear you say that about music because I couldn't play a tune or sing if I wanted to, but the, the whole scope of it, it's crazy how every aspect of what we do from writing, podcasting, musical instrument play, whatever it may be, it all ties back into that same prep work. If you're prepping your mind for success on it, eventually you're going to find that succession of, of, of goals being achieved you just got to get there one step at a time. You know, you don't don't overthink it and don't overplay it. I learned that a lot this year when I was videoing. A lot of the times I first started videoing this year, Clint, I would video myself like doing an opening or doing a closing. I'd do two or three of them. The first one was always the best one. Yep. I may have messed up a word or said something. I was like, but if you listen to all three or four of them, the first one was always the best. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you're, and, that's, and that's human, so people expect that. Right. You know, it's like it, – I mean, listen to us now talking, right? It's like I'm, I'm, I'm searching for the words, the right words to say what I'm trying to say, right? Like that's how we, that's how we communicate, you that's know. Great. So no one, you know, we're not uh, politicians reading off of teleprompters. That's right. You know, and I wouldn't want to live in a world where that was how everyone kind of interacted with each other. <laughs> so well, you know, I, I'm, I'm appreciative of those, <laughs> of of those, you know, kind of happy mess ups, if you will. I think the unscripted moments in life. We spend so much time on a schedule. We mm-hmm. we have schedules with work. You know, we have certain times we have to beat traffic, and we have schedules, you know, for school, for our children, or we have, you know, schedules to take the dog out. The dog's expecting to go out at a certain time, or we eat on schedule. You know, we, we're so much entrenched in our schedule of life, the hunting side of it, you throw that schedule out the window because them deer don't know no schedule. Turkeys don't know a schedule. That's no. and you could throw it out. And I think that's one thing that makes us compelled to chase animals. You're getting off a schedule. You're on. You're on their time. That's man. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the the strategy part to me is always what kind of appealed to me for hunting. I mean, there, there's the part that you know, whenever I was a kid, that I didn't know any better than other than just I was having fun, and I and I still am but fun comes in, in different ways, right? Back then it was, you know, getting home from school, you know, after middle school or whatever and walking in the front door and yelling to dad, like, Hey, I'm grabbing my shotgun and shotgun. I'm going to go chase some ringnecks this afternoon or whatever it was. This is back when PA actually had ringnecks. Um, and, uh, you know, that was just because I could, you know, right. and now 
there's a little bit more intention behind it where it's a thoughtful kind of like, I'm going to go <laughs> and be able to be away, you know, yeah. be able to turn my phone off, you know, because I have, you know, obviously as an adult now, I have a lot more responsibility and a lot more, you know, um, things that require my time and my attention. So anytime I can kind of get away, you know, that's always good for just my, um, for my sanity, <laughs> if you will. Right. But it's also the part of it that's the strategy part of it now as an adult is really what I enjoy. Is that like trying to figure them out, trying to live, you know, at least even if for, for those brief moments or days that we get a field, trying to live on their terms. Cause we ain't, we, we're not in charge out sure. there, you know? And that to me is kind of the beautiful part of it is that I'm not, I'm not really in control of everything or anything to be except what I can control. You know, it's like, I can't control what another hunter might do 200 yards away from me. I can't control what that coyote might do crossing that deer crossing this trail where that deer wants to walk and he catches his, you know, uh, his ground set and turns around. Like those are all the things that I don't control, but there are certain aspects that I can control. And those are the ones that I need to focus on. And then you have to think about, well, what are the ones that are important to me? And that's where your strategy and your, your hunting style and your approach kind of start to come into play, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's that kind of lack of control, if you will, that I don't have, that I'm not responsible for. That is the part that I probably love the most. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's a good, good way to look at it. Well, we've went through our philosophical, uh, uh, <laughs> rundown here and got that out of the way. And, and so I want, you know, for anyone that's, that doesn't know about Clint Campbell, you know, take us all the way back to the beginning of, of where you got your start in the outdoors and where it began for you as far as an outdoorsman. Yeah. I mean, I actually uh, was born in Charleston, South Carolina is where I was born. My dad was in the Navy, Um, but we moved back to PA, um, you know, whenever I was still just like one, two years old. It's where my whole family's from is kind of from central, more Western PA, but kind of central PA, what we refer to as Pennsylvania or Pennsylvania for anyone out there from PA listening. Uh, It's got a lot more in common with those south of the Mason-Dixon than they do those north of the Mason-Dixon, like where I grew up. Um, But I grew up in a rural, a really small rural town. Um, you know, my dad was, was, uh, you know, always in the timber. It's funny. My dad just is getting ready to retire, moved back. He lived in, uh, North Carolina for a little while and just moved back. Now he's retiring and built himself a cabin on a piece of property that he, that he bought. And, uh, he's downsizing, getting rid of all the stuff. So he had this box with all this stuff in it, it was mine. It was, a, and it was actually a baby book in there of mine from whenever I was born. I started just kind of flipping through it cause I'd never seen it. I'm 43 years old and never saw this thing. Started flipping through it and there was like, entries whenever I was like two years old that dad had me out turkey hunting when I was like two, you know, and stuff like that, you know, just took me along. Like we, I mean, he didn't kill anything, but he just took me out in the woods. Cause he was going to go, you know, sit for turkeys or whatever and took me along with him or whatever. Um, and so I didn't realize that it was that early. I mean, my earliest memory is probably like five years old when I about cut my thumb off, he caught a turkey, you know, he got, got himself a turkey and uh, he's like, go get my knife for me so I can, you know, cut his head off and start plucking this thing. I went and got his knife and being five, I was like, I'm going to help the old man out. I'm going to open his knife up. And it was one of those, you know, spring loaded ones or just, you know, that latches shut. I went to open it up and my fingers slipped. And I had my thumb in the way and oh, things back on my thumb. So it's not a big thumb, like a, an adult thumb, just a little kid thumb. You know, it's <laughs> almost cut my thumb off. You know, that was my first memory of, uh, of really anything hunting related. But, you know, we did a lot of small game hunting. My dad still loves to hunt small game. You know, he never was really much of a bow hunter. Um, if he did bow hunt, it was with a recurve and he would really only hunt in the fall. If it was really windy or if it was wet, he would, he would go still hunt. Cause he really likes still hunting. Um, so it was a lot of gun hunting growing up. And, uh, 
did an Alaska hunt with the old man. And then at one point I moved to Orlando to kind of pursue music and didn't have a lot of time to, to hunt. And so I kind of had to get, put it on the back burner for probably 10 years, just because all my time was spent in studios and on the road and in venues and stuff like that. And then when I kind of gave that up and we were moving back to PA, it was, I fell back as soon as we felt moved back, I started hunting again. And that's when I ran into, and I was 30 at the time, I, I think. And, uh, I ran into, uh, my father-in-law's buddy, uh, this guy, Tate, I've had him on the podcast before. Super good dude. Um, he's just retired this January and, uh, he got me into bow hunting. He's the one who introduced me to it. And it was from that moment on, it's like, I fell in love with it and it's been nothing but bow hunting since, you know, and from there, it's kind of went from hunting the family farm to, you know, basically, you know, hunting all public land, not because it's the coolest thing on the planet, really because all the private land that our family owns, you know, is three plus hours away from me. And it's just easier for me to hunt out my back door. And, um, you know, I mentioned offline when we were talking, there was one particular deer that taught me a valuable lesson that I was trying to kill and had him pegged, but he was bedded on the neighbors and he ended up getting killed by somebody else. And so it was kind of that moment where I was like, I'm figuring out where these, where these critters want to bed and where they want to spend time. I just need to be able to be in an area where I'm not limited by boundaries and I can go find them where they're at and kill them where they're at. And that was really why I started hunting public land was just for the access purpose, you know? And then from there, it really kind of became, you know, a love affair. It really, when I took the opportunity to go West and hunt Montana, do an elk mule deer whitetail combo hunt. And that was all in public. And it was just, that trip to me was kind of like the cementing of like, there's all this opportunity out there. If you're just willing to go find it, you know, there's all this adventure out there. If you're willing to just to walk out your back door and, 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 and let it find you, you know? And so that for me was really kind of like a seminal moment where I was like, I don't really ever need, cause prior to that, I was looking at maybe buying a piece of land or maybe leasing a piece and stuff like that. And once I had that trip, I was like, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to shell out the money for that. At least not at this point in my life, maybe when I get older and can't move as well, that might be something I'd be interested in. But I was like, well, I'm blessed enough to have the health to, to move and have an able body and climb mountains and ridges and stuff like that, then I, I want to see all those things. And so, you know, public land gives me the opportunity to, to do those things. It's not about if it's cool or not cool, or it's two things. My body's capable and I want to see what's over the next bend. And I want to be able to go hunt down the animal that I find. I want to be able to go hunt him with, with, without a ton of limitations. Had you already taken like several good deer at this time before you decided to go out West? Like around home? Uh, yeah, a couple. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm a slayer by any stretch of the imagination, but I had a few. But you already been in it for a while before you decided to go to Montana. And what's, yeah, what, what sparked bo- the interest bo- to go was, out there? I mean, so hunting wise, I mean, I've been hunting since I was 12. I, when I went out to Montana, I probably was only bow hunting for like maybe five years. And okay. I just decided I was. So like, that was know, a bow was, hunt. That was, a yeah, it was an archery, uh, archery bow or uh, elk bow hunt or archery elk hunt, whitetail and mule deer. Was there an influence behind that or just you want to just go out? I always, I always wanted to go. And my cousin and his, a good friend of his who, you know, uh, was also a buddy of mine, um, made a trip pretty much every year. And one of our friends lives, uh, that they grew up with, um, lives in, he lives in Lincoln, Montana now. Um, but there's a place south called uh, an area around Dillon is where he was kind of going to, well, he'd gone to school, I think at Montana state, I think is in and around Dillon. And so he had a place, a cabin there that he just kind of retained it. He rented when he was a student and he just kept it. Cause the guy was like, you put a new roof on this place. You can, you can stay here as long as you'd like. 
And so he did. And now he has like a camp there, you know, the ranch hand, because he wasn't using it. And the ranchers just told him he could continue to use it because he kept helped keep up the buildings that were there. Nice. And uh, so we had a place to stay and stuff like that. And we use that as a base camp. And then we would drive into the BLM and put up wall tents and just and stay there and, and, and hunt, you know, from, from a base camp essentially. And that was really the kind of the, the ability to ease myself in. Cause I knew someone who was there that knew the area. And so, you know, could at least put us on the right mountain to, to find elk. And I was at full draw on a, on a good bull. I ended up not killing it. My buddy did. We were beside each other and we were both at full draw and he just happened to turn his way and he got the arrow. And if he would have stepped the other way, it was, would have been my shot. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of, you know, once I saw that and just all the land and the adventure you can have at that point, you know, with like, you know, certainly in Pennsylvania, there's, there's, there's boundaries because we don't have, we, we do have big tracts of public land specifically where I live. They're not gigantic necessarily. Right. Um, but that was just one of those things where I was like, I like to travel to hunt. This is cool. I want to go find places that provide me opportunity to have unique experiences where I have fewer restrictions than, than, you know, private land would, would afford me. You're preaching to the choir, man, from us being from Georgia and you from Pennsylvania. We're the same way. We have public land, but it's oversaturated. I mean, there's not many deer. If you kill a good deer, find a good deer, good luck. You know, somebody right over the hill is going to sh- probably take it with a rifle or whatever. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's always funny to me anytime we talk to someone from PA. It, it's the same mindset. I mean, we mm-hmm. – we we love to get in the woods, and being in the woods is an opportunity for adventure. Well, are you really adventuring if you're within 150, 200 yards of a road? You know, right. and now hey, now I, I will say this though. You know, it's like I have had some of my best encounters, and um, the one deer I'm thinking of specifically, there was one I, I killed in Ohio. It was actually on my first out of state whitetail trip, and. I was like looking, searching like these different places. And I, there was this one ridge. And I was like, eh, I'm going to check it out. I, I, I've told this story before. I actually got lost I, because my, my GPS stopped working. I had like a, had a Garmin, the batteries died. I guess it was on the entire drive. It must've turned on in my pack and I didn't realize it. So that died. My phone, my phone died. So I basically had nothing. Ended up walking a circle and eventually found my way out, but set up in an evening and then just kind of left my stuff there and ended up hunting it and killed a really good Pope and young buck. Um, I was maybe when all was said and done, when I finally kind of picked the tree I was in 150, maybe 200 yards from, from where I was parked, like just maybe, but it was just kind of like the perfect spot. It was like this little funnel in between these two doe bedding areas. And it would just turn on during the rut. I've put cameras there and watch it year over year. And it will just turn on the same three day window every year. And there will be a bona fide giant that will walk through there in those three days for sure like it happens like happens like clockwork so i'm a big like advocate of especially now that so many people with you know access to phone gps it's almost like uh uh you know how you know how whenever you go out to a bar a small guy gets real big when he's had about three beers (laughs) you know what i mean like (laughs) to me the gps on your phone does that for a lot of people in the timber people who wouldn't usually be willing to make the two mile hike into an area have a, have an increased sense of confidence in their woodsmanship because they have a phone that's telling them where they're at typically, right. Yeah. Regardless of what app they're using. So what I've started finding is that a lot of times they're pushing past stuff that you, that are that's prime, you know, and that staying closer to the road in a lot of cases, 
those deer are laying up closer to the road because they're getting pressure further back. And they're w- just watching people setting up bedded to watch people walk by their, by their, on their access. I found that in this one piece that I'm scouting now that I started scouting last year, it's a piece of big woods. The particular chunk that I'm on is, I think, around 50,000 acres, roughly. And then it's connected to a couple other pieces. So all the public together in that area is probably somewhere between like 150,000 and 200,000 acres. And uh, I, I did a bunch of scouting, you know, last year. And I kind of pushed back in pretty deep. And I hung some cameras. I found some scrapes and stuff like that and got some really good deer on camera. And then I went out for late season um, and carried my bow and just still hunted. I was basically on like a recon mission. And made this huge loop. I don't even know how far I walked, but I ended up getting back toward where I had parked and there's a stream that was there. And there was this one edge that this kind of cliff drop off kind of created. And I, it was by this logging road where we were, I was getting all these pictures and videos of deer hitting these scrapes. And I was like, man, I was like, I bet if I walk along this edge, it's like, I bet you I'm going to find something decent, you know? So I walked along that edge, found some scat in this area. Like you, it, there's spots in this piece. that doesn't look like there had been a deer in 2000 years, you know, like, it's just like, it's big woods. There's not a ton of deer. Um, but the age structure is right. Like the caliber of deer is right. Yeah. Um, and so I got to this one little area and I was like, okay, it's starting to feel good. It's starting to get thick, getting close to some water. And then all of a sudden it's like scrape, big rub, scrape, big rub. And it is not, it might be 150 yards from the road, maybe, you know, and, and when I was walking through there where the sign was concentrated, I was looking in vain for a bed. Cause I was like, man, this would be a perfect spot for a buck to bed because in one particular spot, I can see how people access. Cause I use the same access as everybody to get in like this logging road, you cross this like piece of water and then you're kind of into the timber. And I'm like, man, if I bet, if I was a buck embedded right here, I could watch everyone walk in. You know what I mean? Like a hundred percent. They'd never know that I was here and no one would ever check it. You know, there's not a stitch of human sign in that spot. And that was where I found more sign in that 75 yard, 50 to 75 yard swath of, of thick stuff near some, you know, near some hemlocks than I had found probably in like five, six days combined scouting over the past, like over the past year. Hmm. Different play. It yeah, is. That's, so, that's that's where that place I hunt up there in Illinois. It's right on. It's biggest deer I've ever killed up there was probably less than seventy five yards from the road. But they, if you go up there and hunt at any other time outside of rut, you're lucky to even see a deer come through there. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm not saying that you you know everyone shouldn't run out and start hunting along the road <laughs> right. necessarily, right? Yeah, it's yeah. All, but yes, yeah. keep saying that, Clint. <laughs> Tell them that because yeah. that's, that's what that's what I want everybody to do. Yeah. You you stay up close. Yeah. Let me all go you by. public land hunters stay close to the road. Stay close to the road. Yeah. Right the well, and line. we we get that common you know conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we hear people all the time that'll say, and and we hunt public out of state. We go to Illinois mm-hmm. and hunt there. And there's people that'll be hunting, you know, 50, 75 yards yeah. from the, uh, from the, uh, wow, that was loud <laughs> from the, uh, actual road. But what amazes me is you talk about pushing in deep and I'm the kind of guy, like you said, I want to go farther than anyone else, but I'm not necessarily looking to go into the deepest part. I'm looking for those escape routes and, and everybody else is going over here to, to hunt I want to find out, all right, if I'm a deer, I'm going to go this way to get away from those people. And it plays into what yeah. you said with them laying there and watching people walk in and out. And I don't know, it's an interesting concept to to hunt public in today's society because so many people do it. I mean, yeah. 
but there's so many people that are fearful to do it because of the pressure. Yeah, I can't yeah, shoot I mean, 200 yards with a bow. I'm sorry, I, I can't. And if somebody yeah. sets up within 200 yards of me or 100 yards of me, okay. I'm sorry, you know, I'm sitting here. You go sit over there. I hope you scare in my way. There's just that opportunity, and I think a lot of people see somebody in an, in an area, and they feel like it's been inundated with, with scent or whatever, and they're going to get up and move. When in reality, man, you really ain't got to. You just you got to hang in there with it. If it's a spot that you're confident in, I'm, 95% of my, my luck or whatever you want to call it is staying where I first thought was the best spot and using that ingenuity or having an intuitive nature to what's going on there and, and staying with it. Yeah. I, I think there's two things there that I want, wanted to kind of build on that you, that you, that you had mentioned, you know, the one thing I will say is you know, talking, cl- hunting close to the road or close to access or whatever it is, you know, I'll hunt as far or as close to the road as I need to, that I think is going to give me the best opportunity to have, have the type of encounter I want to have. Now, whether I get a shot off or whatever the case is, you know, a lot of times I'm hunting areas that are new. I rarely from year to year hunt the same spots over to over, even locally on public. I'm just, I don't know if I have like a problem or something, but like <laughs> I kind of hunt different spots and I, I rarely go back year over year to the same spots over and over. I might have like a prime spot or two that I like, you know what I mean? That I might go back at certain time frames, but otherwise, and it might only be like a three day window that I'm going to hunt that particular spot. And otherwise right. I might just be jumping around based on wind to places I've never hunted before just to start to qualify it, to understand it, understand how the winds working in these new spots. So that's the one thing I would say is that, yeah, you can hunt close to the road, a lot of people talk about it now. Dan Dan Enfall, you know, preaches it because he's killed big deer right off the parking lot. You know, that's a guy that's seen that probably happen more more than anybody I know. Um, but he also will say there are some places where you do have to go deeper. You know what I mean? Just based on access or whatever the case is. Talking about hunting, you know, people, you know, whether they're 100 yards or 200 yards away from you. One thing, you know, my buddy Greg Litzinger and I always kind of joke about when we scout together is that if you hunt in Pennsylvania or Jersey or hell even Michigan for that matter. If, uh, if flagging tape scares you, you're going to have a real hard time in these States, you know, finding a place to hunt, you know, we call it bright eyes, eyes. Bright, yeah. bright eyes here. Yeah. <laughs> bright eyes, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, exactly. Bright eyes, flagging tape or any of that. If that, if that deters you, you're going to have a real hard time hunting public land in, in semi-populated areas. Now I go to some bigger woods pieces in PA where I don't see nearly as much of that. There's not as many people on it but certainly where I live, it's, it's all over the place, you know? And so you have to almost, you have to hunt the hunters to a degree, you know, if I can get away from them, I try to, you know, but you got to kind of start using their pressure a little bit. And when you're scouting, you have to kind of almost scout what they're doing. That's right. You know? And so it's like, when I find someone's flagging tape, I walk it out. Like I'm like, okay, how's this dude getting in here? Where's he, where's he get, where's he accessing from? And then ultimately where's he set up? Because I need to know, you know, if it's a Saturday, I can assume he's probably going to be in there. And if the wind's right for me, but if he's accessing a certain way that his access is going to be bad for where I'm setting up, even if he might be hunting 500 yards away, I can't hunt that. Right. You know what I mean? Like that's going to, that's going to blow me up. And so you kind of have to hunt the hunter a little bit too, and just kind of understand how their pressure is going to impact. And there's one particular setup that I use, you know, uh, where I know there's a ton of people around, like, you know, I've seen the flagging tape, I've found the stands, I've marked all of it, you know, I know where it's all at. And, you know, I've actually heard the guy rattling and stuff like that. So I knew exactly where he was going to be. And so the first time I hunted it, I was like, this, where I'm set up, isn't going to work. 
And so I ended up using, you know, a different access, a different way to access and got into this one area that was, I kind of felt like no one else was going to be in because it was just no person that is sane is going to walk into there. You know, it's just, if you were going to get in there, you're going to have to use other means than walking, essentially levitation, water, whatever it is. Right. <laughs> and so I ended up setting up in this little, little area because I knew that there was a hunter that was going to be to my North. And I knew that there were some people who were set up just kind of like to my Northeast a little bit. And so the only place the deer were going to kind of feel safe was in this area where I kind of had, had found and it would, they would push all the deer into that area. And sure enough, like my trail camera data told me that and ended up having a killer encounter with a shooter this year that I just didn't get drawn back on. Um, it was one of the three deer I was willing to kill this year, you know, and it was basically because I'm kind of hunting the pressure that's, that's around me. The other part of that is what I started doing a lot of was just, uh, hunting mornings, you know, during the week, uh, before work when no one else, when no one else is out pretty lucky. I got a flexible schedule. So if I need to go in late or sign in late, cause I work remotely, I can do that. My bosses are cool. I just say, Hey, I'm going to gonna go try to kill a deer this morning. I'll be, I'll sign on around 11. Like they're cool. They're cool with that. So, you know, I'll kind of take advantage of that and try to hunt, you know, especially in October mornings before work. And I've kind of grown to really like October mornings more so than evenings. A couple of reasons. One, I feel like I just have better encounters Two, evenings. I'm more, li- more likely to have someone, going to booger me up than I am in the morning in October. Yeah. And that, and that plays right into, I've heard you talk on your podcast and, and other podcasts about how much you put into scouting mm-hmm. and, and that's big. I mean, that's even big for the off season for you, correct? Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. I sometimes joke that I might like scouting more than I like hunting, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, um, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, you know, offline a little bit is just like the strategy piece of it. Um, I've got a curious mind and I, I'm, I have a, bad habit of wanting to know what's around the next bend or what's around the next corner or up over that next ridge or whatever. And scouting is the time for me to do that, you know, um, where I'm not worried about boogering things up. I'm just learning, just consuming as much information as I can possibly get, you know, whether it's good or bad, like I don't care. I just want the Intel and I'll filter it later and figure out what it means. Um, so yeah, I try to put as, you know, as many miles in as I possibly can. Uh, and it's not even like I scout places that I know that like I'm, probably 90% sure I'm not even going to hunt, but because part of it is, is like, I just have this idea and I talked to Tony Peterson about it and he actually wrote an article um, for the media or, you know, website or for their blog about it that, you know, I just have this belief that the more terrain, the more diverse habitat and terrain that I can see consistently, the more I'll create an analog or a Rolodex in my mind that I can have on recall really, really quickly about in, in a different spot. Right. So it's kind of probably confusing. So I'll try to explain it a little bit better. So if I'm hunting somewhere, this happened to me whenever I was in, I was in Missouri and I'd never hunted Creek bottom before or river bottom before it wasn't a Creek. It was a river. I'd never hunted river bottom before, you know, I've hunted plenty of swamps and stuff like that mountaintop swamps and stuff like that. And we were scouting. I found this scrape line and the way the, the, the way that the, the habitat was and like the way the edges kind of came together, the way the scrapes were kind of set up and the way the, the, the topo just kind of undulated just like a little bit remind, cause it was pretty flat reminded me of like a swamp setup I had in Pennsylvania. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, Oh man, this feels familiar. And I was like, all right, this is where we need to set up. And so I kind of immediately knew like how I needed to hunt it based on, how it looked. Cause I felt like I'd been there before. Like it was, I had deja vu where I was like, mm, I've seen this before. The deer, I've never been there before, but the deer are going to come from this direction. 
and this is going to how they're moved through. And this is where I need to set up. And this is what my wind's doing. And sure enough, we, uh, we ended up leaving that spot because I felt like it was a better morning setup. Went and hunted a different spot that evening. Didn't see anything. Came back the next morning, bumped a deer off the scrape line that a guy that I knew that was in the area that we had met at camp. Like he was leaving the same time. We were kind of coming to one, uh, the one day he was hunting a couple hundred yards to our North. And at that same time, about 20 minutes later, he had 160 inch 10 point combined. Pretty sure it's the one I bumped what the deer I bumped off that scrape line. Cause that's the direction he went. And then we ended up seeing three bucks within 45 minutes set up in that spot. Didn't get a shot at any of them, but we were at the right, we were at the right spot, you know? Um, and that's what I, when I talk about trying to scout as much as I can, I'll scout places that I know full well that I'm probably not going to hunt that year, but I'm doing it because I'm just trying to consume as much information. It's like data. You know, I give this analogy, Google is as valuable as it is or worth as much as it is, or Amazon, maybe a better, a better example is, is as valuable as it is, is worth as much of it as it is not based on how much they sell, but based on how much data they have because their user interface and their artificial intelligence is so smart because they have so much data. They know what you need and what you want before you know, you need it and want it. That's right. yeah. It's the same. It's the same thing with, it's the same thing with deer hunting or bow hunting. I'm trying to build up as much data as I possibly can. That way, when I see something, I don't even need to know what it is. And it'll just, it'll pop up in my mind and be like, you've seen this before. This is what it is. I haven't even thought about it yet. I haven't even processed it yet. And I already know what's going to happen. Now I'd be lying. If I say I can do that all the time, like to me, like the, the greats, like a guy like Andy may can do that almost anywhere on any hunt. Right. I'm still a guy that like, it happens once in a while, <laughs> you know, but there's still a lot of times where I got to try to think through it, but that's the whole purpose of seeing as much as I can see traveling as much as I can travel, hunting as much diverse, you know, topography, terrain, habitat states as I possibly can, just so I can increase the size of my database. Gotcha. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here th- th- I, and because it plays into just exactly what we've talked about time and time again, more time in the woods, more opportunity to find things that you haven't seen before and I guess subconsciously, we all look at it the same way. I mean, you as a turkey hunter, Nick, you go into a piece of piece of woods, you've looked at those situations before. I do the same thing. You go in there and you're, you're looking at it, basing everything on past experiences. And I think that's a, that's a great way to put it, Clint. I mean, you, you put it in a, in a nutshell that I, I hadn't thought about before, so great way to yeah. put it. Have you found deer early season, or I should not even season, not even deer season, have you found that it helps finding those areas early. Like maybe you find that buck's home or a deer that schooled you last year. You're able to find out where he lives and execute and get in there and kill him the next year. Has that been helpful? Yeah. I mean, it certainly has as far as, you know, being able to put a game plan together. Um, what it's really helped with more than anything is in being able to cut out a lot of places that I don't need to go scout, you know, so I can look at a map more quickly now, you know, before I put boots on the ground and I can probably tell you within pretty decent accuracy where I'm going to find sign and where I'm not going to find sign, you know, um, as far as I, I spend such limited time in my home state hunting. Um, I should probably spend more time in my home state to be quite <laughs> honest with you, because by the time I get something figured out, I'm usually leaving to go somewhere else because I really just kind of enjoy the, enjoy the chase. And it happens more quickly than other, than other places. You know, I'll just give you a, for example, you know, for this year, I had three deer locally that I was willing to kill, you know, um, one was in a place that I had some, a little bit of history with, and 
what I had built was off of scouting, but also I had kind of built up a database of uh, camera intel. And so I, I've watched this particular area over the course of uh, one full season, you know, and, and two off seasons. And it's a primary scrape. And I know that deer are using it year round to communicate. And I kind of know in general from watching it that the first time that a mature deer is going to daylight in that area is probably around the 15th to the 18th. Like it's been pretty consistent. Like I've seen that there and like in a couple other cameras, like in this area. And so sure enough, I took a day off of work in the middle of the week. I think it was the 16th and the deer that I was trying to kill showed up. And that's the one I couldn't get. That's the one I couldn't get drawn. Like I, I, I didn't figure out what deer it was until he crossed this brush. There's two big eight points that were in there. One was probably a, a three-year-old. He was probably like 115-ish inches or so. Good PA buck. But there was another one that was in there, had the same exact rack, same exact frame, just just longer times. And was a four-and-a-half-year-old. And he was probably like 130 and some change or whatever. And that was the one I wanted to kill. But behind brush, like the frames look exactly the same until mm-hmm. I saw him kind of pop out and I knew which one it was. Rookie mistake because I didn't draw, right? And so that was me building a database of, of basically dates and behavior. Like I know what dates are going to work there and I know what, how the deer are going to behave around those dates and typically what areas are going to come from. Right. Another area was a spot that I scouted in the winter, uh, a big signpost rub and a, another big primary scrape on this, on this Ridge with some, uh, with some white Oaks in the area. And so I'd never been there. Um, I think it was the, f- maybe it was the 15th. I want to say, cause those two hunts were all, were like the same week, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think it was like the 15th and, uh, the wind was wrong for every other setup I had. And I was like, man, I really want to, I want to hunt that setup because I feel like with that, the way that primary scrape sets up, the way the thermals are going to kind of work in that, in that area, I feel like a morning hunt, even in October is probably going to be my best bet. There was a buck bed that wasn't far away. And whenever, whenever, uh, Greg and I were scouting together, when we found it, we both felt like it was probably not a rut bed, probably like a mid-October, mid-October bed, because there was a primary scrape that was to his north, I guess it had been slightly to his south and his east. Um, and then there was a another smaller scrape that was obviously not a primary scrape, but more as like a, a rut or pre-rut scrape that was that was still visible when we were scouting. And that was to, I guess it was really to like his west. And we found like a, a rub line that was coming out. And I was like, man, I either need to set up on that lower scrape or I need to set up on the, on the primary scrape that's up higher. And I was like, I feel like I need to hunt that higher elevation because I don't know what the wind's going to do. And, and the higher elevation just might help me out because if I get lower, it's going to swirl and be squirrely on me. So I ended up accessing in there. Access was killer, got into the tree. And what I really realized was, and this again goes back to just trying to get information. I didn't know what was going to happen there. But from hunting some of the other scrapes and things like that around this area the past few years and kind of focusing on scrapes, I kind of knew that the time frame, that 15th to 18th date was probably going to be a good day. If there's a good buck in that area, probably going to be, you know, be around that time frame. And I had one faint dark trail camera picture from the area that had like a good, like a good eight point on it. And uh, so I hopped up in a tree that day and uh, <laughs> I'm glad I did because a North wind in there blows South and the South wind blows North. That's just how, how the wind works there. And I would have never known until I got in there. And fortunately, I think it was a, a North wind that day. So it was blowing South. And if it would have been the opposite, I would have been completely screwed. Right. So it's just, you know, sometimes you got to be lucky. And so I got in there and I was in the tree for 30 minutes of daylight, had one buck walk out, a shooter got behind a, a, a bush, made a scrape, never gave me a shot opportunity. And I watched him for probably 10 minutes, just could not for the life of me, get him to 
commit. He was too close. I wasn't going to call to him or anything like that. And then he walked away. And about 30 minutes later, another one came from my West, hit that signpost rub, scraped it, you know, rubbed it real good, came up, hit a scrape, got all fired up. He was at five yards and I let him walk. He was a decent eight point, but just, he was probably a three-year-old, you know, so let him, let him walk, walk off. But that was, you know, two instances this year where building that Rolodex of like hunting a bunch of different places, but also paying attention to trail camera data, not just specific to the place that I'm hunting, like a spot, but to the general area and how deer are using these different, you know, the different sign that you're going to find and what time of year are they going to be, to be active? Because there's plenty of other places that I've been where, you know, scrapes don't heat up until the end of October. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't even hunt them until the end of October. But I found some places in and around here that I've found that I can have success and have really good encounters in that October lull time frame. Do you find yourself going to different states each year or do you like to go into – I know you said you went to Kansas this year. Mm-hmm. You went out there for two weeks. Is that right? Yeah, I try yeah. to go to a different state every year. Is, is, there, is there a goal um, behind that? or? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of jokingly said I'd like to do – I called it the DIY slam. I mean, I know you're familiar as a turkey hunter with the with the you know the world slam. Or yeah. what, I don't even know what it's called. That's how bad of a turkey hunter I yeah, am. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're chasing the – four, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chasing um, 27, ain't that one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so kind of just playing off of that, I was like, I want to do a DIY slam. I was like, I want to kill a respectable buck on public land in every major whitetail state or every whitetail state I can get ha, to. Has that been done? Not to my knowledge. No. Yeah. I mean, I'd say the guys like from the hunting public are probably going to do it before me, <laughs> you know, just given their ability to hunt, you know, every, every day during the course of the season and stuff like that. But I don't know that it's been done, but even if it was, it wouldn't keep me from wanting to do it. It's just, you know, again, kind of going back to that desire to constantly learn and see new things and have new experiences and, um, you know, and just, I mean, it's just hunting Kansas this year was like nothing I'd ever seen before, you know, nothing I'd ever experienced before. First trip I there. Got my at- first trip there. Yeah. And someone asked me, you know, I, someone asked me a question about Kansas and I, you know, maybe it was like how much scout I'd done or whatever the case was or where I was going to be if I had a piece picked out or whatever. I said, the first time I'm going to see Kansas in my life is when I cross the state line. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I've never been there. You know, I was like, and I kind of prefer to do that. Um, I freelance hunt a lot. Like I like showing up to places where I don't have any Intel. I like to just go try to figure it out. Um, there's something to me that's freeing where you kind of lose all that, you know, self-imposed expectation or pressure or, you know, what should happen or where you should kill the deer. I think so often in the areas that you're familiar with, I know I'm guilty of this in my home state because Greg Litzinger again, he'll make fun of me. Cause he's like, dude, he's like, you get on more deer more quickly when you go out of state than anybody I know. He was like, he's like, he's like, and in Pennsylvania, he was like, you have like the best trail camera pictures and you know where the best deer are in your area of anybody I know. He was like, and you'll usually see one or two of them every year. He was like, but for whatever reason, he's like, you can't, like, you can't seem to stick one with an arrow in Pennsylvania. Preaching to the choir on that one. That that kills me because that's the same yeah. way it is here in Georgia. I mean, I cannot get one killed here. To save my life. I well, mean, I, Nick knows I've chased them. I mean, I chased some big bucks here, and I just cannot. Uh-huh. But you hit the nail on the head with something that there's a pressure that you feel when you're close to home. I feel that pressure 
way more than when I'm out because I feel like I've got I feel like I've got a hundred percent foolproof game plan to get a deer killed here. Well, I don't have a game plan when I go out of state. There's no there's yeah. no game. And plan. a lot of it though is you're at home. You're over you're over in the woods. You're like, man, I could I got to be at home doing this. The wife needs me to come home. It's That's be- true. It's better to load up and take off and and. Oh, I hundred percent agree with that. I hunt I hunt better whenever I'm whenever I'm detached. Yeah. I'll when you're hunting, I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah. I'm the same way. I, I, I get to thinking I about, I man, think that, I could go home yeah, and just, I could do this. I could do that. And, yeah. And I, I don't think that that's odd. You know, I think that that's pretty, I think a lot of guys have that, you know, where it's like, you know, they have things at home they could be doing and it's probably easier to kind of just focus on that when, when you're detached. I think mine is, you know, to, I think to your point about having a plan, when I go out of state, I don't have, my only plan is to make a plan. That's right. That's really the, that's the plan. You know, when I'm at home, yeah because I'm trying to fit it in between work and all those things. Like I'm trying to like, you know, I was pretty good at it this year. Like I should have had, I should have filled it. I should have killed two different deer, you know, like should have been done, you know, but I'm trying to be so exacting. And I'm, you know, the thing is, is I know that. So that's the thing I focus on at home is how do I be more strategic? How do I, how do I make like my, my sits be high opportunity sits and not waste sits. That's right. You know? And so that was really my goal this year. And I did that because I mean, I think truthfully during a regular part of the season, I think I might've had maybe 10 hunts and had two encounters with two, two of my target deer. So I had three target deer and I had encounters with two of them over the course of 10 hunts. And all those hunts weren't all days. They were like a morning for three or four hours an evening for four hours or whatever the case was. So it was, I was definitely more strategic and precise this year than I've been in years past, but I think we also get hung up on like, you want to, you feel like it should happen in this spot. And so you press it, you press it, you press it to do it at this spot, as opposed to just paying attention. Like when I'm out of state, I just pay attention to the sign and tell me where the deer is going to let me kill it. You know? And I think we get hung up on like, it needs to happen in this place. There was one deer in particular I was chasing this year, never had an encounter with him. I missed him by two days twice, or I missed him by, I should, I missed him by a day, two different times. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you guys a, a video of him after this. I don't want to mention anything about him cause he's kind of a unique deer. <laughs> if anyone's listening to this, that lives around me probably will know which deer it is. Yeah. Um, but I had him, I knew where he was bedded, but the acorns kind of, kind of dropped and he became a little bit more scarce. And I had two scrapes that were kind of like in his home range that I thought he would frequent and he did, but he didn't do it. Like he was real, real killable. Like, end of September through like the first week and a half of October. But I didn't realize that cause I didn't check that particular camera until the first week of October, like end of September. Like I could have killed him. You know, our, my season around here, special regs unit comes in like middle of September. So I could have killed him at the end of September. And then I was like, well, you know what? I'm going to wait till like the second week of, you know, October. I love that. The October law. Like I love that time period in the mornings. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to back off and wait till then, then I'm going to come in. Well, when I went in and did that, I ended up checking a camera in that area as I was walking by it. He showed up two different times in daylight on like the 13th and like the thing was like the 11th or something like that. And then after that, he was a ghost. And then he showed back up. I hunted him on the 22nd over a scrape. He hit that scrape on the 23rd at 9am. I hunted him on the evening of the 22nd. I missed him by like whatever it was, 10 hours. And then I hunted him on another primary scrape that was in his core area. That was, uh, I think I hunted him on the 27th and he hit that scrape at like five o'clock in the afternoon on 20, on the 29th, I say, or the 28th. 
It is. So it, I, it is, I missed him a couple different times. There's a thought that comes to mind though, hunting in Pennsylvania and you talk about it. Do you, let's say you hunt five, five hunts, just doesn't matter what time, morning, evening, whatever. Out of those five hunts, are you pretty much guaranteed in Pennsylvania to see a deer every one of those sits? Mm, no, no. I had hunt. I had, you know, I would say, uh, man, I think aside from those bucks that I had encounters with, I think I only saw two other sits I saw deer. All right, so we go to the Midwest, Kansas, Illinois, Iowa, wherever, and we chase deer there. You set five sets, you're going to see a deer pretty much every single set. Yeah. And yeah, I, 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 I asked that because to, to lead up to this question, do you think it's made you a better Midwest hunter hunting Pennsylvania, just like oh my, it's made yeah. us better hunting in Georgia? Yeah, by by far. Yeah. Um, I, I I think a couple different reasons. I, I will say this. There's times when I do go out of state to some of these places where it's, you know, I'm prioritizing areas that I'm hunting that's, you know, in cover and things like that. So there there's sits there that I, that I don't see deer still, you know, cause I'm trying to hunt in areas where I'm going to see the right deer not just deer, deer in general, which right. you know, I'm sure you guys get that, you know? Um, but to answer your question. Yeah. I mean, when I can go out of state to Kansas was tough this year, but it was, it was tough it was a lot of my doing because it was just so foreign to me spot and stalking and hunting exclusively on the ground. Like that was just a new, a new animal. for yeah, me. I guess so. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but we, I got her figured out, I started getting it figured out toward the end of the trip and had a really, really, I have, I was drawn back on a really good animal and just couldn't, couldn't seal the deal. Um, but you know, when I go places like Ohio or Iowa or, you know, Missouri or whatever the case is, like I'll usually get into deer, pretty pretty quickly now whether or not it's the caliber of deer that you're looking for or not remain remains to be seen um but i certainly think it makes it i don't want to say easier i, I always say like trying to kill if you want to go out and kill a two and a half or three year old in in iowa and, and you're just trying to kill something that's like 125 inches 120 inches like i mean yeah you you're gonna, you're gonna have, have a good heart. common yeah yeah you're gonna have you're gonna have a lot of fun you know what I mean? Like you're going to see deer and it's, it's going to happen. You know, if you're trying to hold out for something bigger or more mature deer, it, like hunting mature deer here or anywhere else is, is, is hard. You know, like they're smart. They don't make a lot of mistakes. The, the, it's a more target rich environment, but that doesn't guarantee you anything more than like the, op, the possibility that you could see one that day potentially. But if it crosses your ground scent, just like a deer crosses your ground scent in Pennsylvania, he ain't he ain't coming through. But the you thing got the wrong wind, you got the wrong wind. You know what I mean? So it's like, so yeah, it does make you better because all those things like they don't give you very many, they don't give you very many mulligans in Pennsylvania. And you I get a mulligan or two in some of these unpressured states where you can make one or two mistakes as long as it's not the critical mistake. That's right. You know, as long as it's not like he smells you and seen you. You know what I mean? Like he smells you, you're probably dead. He sees you, you're probably all right. You probably get a pass. That's you right. You know what I mean? Um, in PA, they even think you're around. (laughs) That's the way they are in Georgia. And and it's, it's just crazy. And and I know you listen to podcasts. I know you've been around the podcast game for a long time. There's a lot of these Midwest hunters that get pigeonholed into thinking that they're better as hunters because they're able to kill more mature deer. But 
I'll argue it till the day is long. You take a guy that has struggled his entire life in a state like Georgia, Tennessee, uh, PA, even you get into some like Wisconsin. I mean, some of those hunters up there, they've had struggles at, at getting on them. You put them in the Midwest, man, it's just they're going to get it done in some capacity in a lot of ways that people don't realize because they're willing to sacrifice seeing. Hell, I've sat 25, 30 times this year in Georgia, and I bet I didn't see maybe two deer Mm -hmm. the whole time I was hunting. I mean, Mm -hmm. it'd be a doe. I I did not see a mature buck. I saw one mature buck this year in Georgia on the hoof. Now, I had plenty of trail camera pictures, but I think we get – I'm telling you, I don't, I don't, you take Georgia or Pennsylvania. I've talked to enough people from Pennsylvania. That's almost ruined me from hunting here, though, because of the deer numbers are so, so down. Well, and habitat's one thing that's came into play. And I don't know how Pennsylvania is, but habitat in North Georgia with, with what's happened with the timber, uh, as far as our public ground goes, there is no understory. There, it's gone. They don't harvest the timber. There is no, and they just released another study that that's what's killing the turkey and deer population in North Georgia because they don't have timber cut. There's no growth on the ground. There's nothing for them to eat. I don't know how Pennsylvania is, but that's what's killing the North Georgia mountains as far as deer hunting goes. You can still kill a mature deer here. It's going to happen. I mean, they're going to pass through, but I don't know. It's something to be said for for hunters that have struggled hunting and the appreciation we have for a 140-inch deer. I don't care if I ever kill another deer over 140 inches, but I can promise you the next 140 inch deer that comes by me, I don't. If I drive to Illinois for a week to hunt, I'm probably going to shoot that deer. That's just where I am in my life at 35 years old, and I've killed them. But yeah, I'm going to be happy with it, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm the same way, man. It's like I always say, it's like uh, you know, mid 130s and 140s walk by me, I'll never shoot a 170. You know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's just I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pass it, you know. I think, you know, I think the other thing is too, is I think as I've, as I've gone, I've, and I've talked to, you know, countless people about this. I had a really good conversation with Tony Peterson about it. It's like, you have to, if, when you hunt some of these hard to hunt States, like whether it's a Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, you know, you have to reframe what success looks like to your point. There's seasons that I don't pull my bow back in Pennsylvania, you know, like where I don't even pick it up off where I don't even pick it up when I'm in a tree, you know, maybe I saw a couple of deer, but it wasn't the right one. Or maybe I just, I was hunting in areas where it was like, it was either going to be that deer or no deer, That's you right. know, and like in that year, it was just no deer, you know? Um, but what I started kind of doing is understanding, like I'm playing the long game. Like I'm, I'm in this for the rest of my life, you know? And so when you look at it from that perspective and like every opportunity is an opportunity to, to learn and pick something up and, re-examine and journal and look back on it and read what those hunts looked like to see where did I make a mistake or what did I see that day and what does it mean not just at face value but when I I take a moment and I reflect you know it's it's that reframing of success of success that the year might have been there was a deer I saw and I wanted to kill him and man I had an encounter like I was the strategy was right the setup was right he just did not cross that piece of brush to give me a shot right like to me sometimes in pennsylvania that's the win like i beat him you know what i mean like i beat him at his game he just he just did not make two more steps he didn't smell me he didn't see me he didn't hear me he just was for whatever reason he wasn't going to pass my tree today and i saw him at 20 yards he's dead you know so you kind of have to reframe success a little bit 
to kind of keep you, at least for me anyway, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but to kind of keep me driven and keep me kind of grinding, knowing that PA is a tough grind. It's a tough hunt. It is, you know, and I'm stupid enough to go to some of these places that are a little further away from me in PA that are big woods that are even harder <laughs> where the deer numbers are even lower, you know, but it's that chase for like, man, the, there's magnums there. I, ha- I see, I, I've got them on camera. I know they're there and I want to beat a mountain warrior at his own game. You know what I mean? Like that's what I want to do, you know? And so if it takes me five years to do it and I don't fill tags for five years, you know, then, then so be it, you know, that's, I'll get my kicks going out of state. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that's where I go and get my rocks off and have fun. You that's know right. what I mean? It's because I know I'm going to see deer and I'm going to see big deer and it's going to be, it's going to be a blast. And, you know, but sometimes like this year, I, I bit off more than I could chew, you know, and I'm not too proud to admit it. I went to a state where it was, you know, hunting out of a tree was almost non-existent. There's a lot of glassing. It was, you know, you sometimes felt like you weren't even hunting because you were behind a glass so much, you know, and then when you saw one, you would run into the timber and try to cut them off you know what I mean? And try to set up on him, trying to guess where he was going to go. And we did it, did it once correctly. It was like 160 inch deer and he was 20 yards from me. And my buddy Chad had a camera was filming. He could see him, but I was set up between these cedars and couldn't see him, you know, and he walked oh, right by, <laughs> you know what I mean? So what a it's punch like, in the gut. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's things like that where, you know, like that was success. Yeah. You know, it's like, if you stop and you think about it, like, if someone told you today, you're going to go to Kansas, you've never been there in your life. The first time you see it is when you cross the state line. You're going to hunt exclusively from the ground. You're not even going to decoy a deer. You're going to glass one in a, a wheat field on top of a ridge or on top of a mountain running down toward a creek bottom that has a finger, like a draw running into like a cedar draw running into it. And you see him running a doe and you're going to run like you're running sprints and football with a bow in your hand through the timber and find a little patch of cedars to set up and thinking that that deer is going to come through there. And you're going to see that deer at 20 and you're going to have that deer within 20 yards. If someone told you that was going to happen, would you say, Oh yeah, yeah, that'll happen. Yeah. Nah, you like, hell no. Like, well, I'm going to go down there and set up. I'll just hunt there. I'll just sit there. And then I wouldn't see anything for the rest of the week. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, you could look at it one of two ways. You could be defeated and think that this sucks and this is a horrible experience and I blew an opportunity or you can look at it and be, and look at it in a, from the perspective and allow it to energize you by looking at it going, I'm completely out of my element here. I was 20 yards from 160 inch deer that I literally Navajo Cherokee style <laughs> ran up. on. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that, you know what I mean? So I choose to look at it that way. You know what I mean? That like I was in the game and that's all I ask for. Right. It's like when you're playing ball, playing football or wrestling, I was a big wrestler growing up. You know, if you're outmatched and you are every day of the week in the whitetail woods as a hunter, you're outmatched. Like I don't, the best hunters, they're outmatched. That's right. All I ever want is to be in the game. Just give me the ball with a minute and a half left, no timeouts and down a score. That's all I want. (laughs) You know what I mean? If I can get that, I'll take those odds opportunity you know. that's right yeah you know, it's all that, I want, that's you know? that and then we talked about that when uh nick cody and and one of our other friends brandon went back to illinois for a, a late late season hunt you know and we talked about it going up to the point you're putting yourself in the game you're leaving georgia you're going up there and you're going after an opportunity you may not get it 
but you're not going to get it on the couch and you're not going to have it sitting at home, but you're taking a chance and going after an opportunity. And I just, I think that's consistent to everything that we do in the whitetail woods, especially is put yourself in a position to have an opportunity. And if you get it done, great. If you didn't, you were there. And in that moment you had the opportunity. Yeah. And, and I think it's, um, you know, for, for me, it's also just about how I try to live my life in general. You know, uh, it, to me, a lot of times how you hunt whitetails is how did you ever hear that quote of how you do anything is how you do everything. I oh. heard that. Right. So it's, it's the idea that the most minuscule tasks that you have to do will, will tell you how you'll do everything else in your life. If the minuscule task is not worthy of your effort and your focus and your, in your best effort, then whenever the chips are down and whenever things get the toughest, you'll never have, you'll never give it your best effort. You just don't have it in you. That's not your makeup, you know? And to me, like hunting whitetails, you know, my friends, at least, you know, whenever I look at them, like they live their life, like they hunt whitetails, like with their hair on fire, Mm -hmm. you know, now they might only be able to get out two weeks out of the year because of their job obligations and family or whatever, but man, when they are out there, there are no other dudes you'd rather be with. It's good that you know, like they're gonna they're gonna come home dog tired, tongue hanging out, like you know what I mean. Like that's just how they get after it, you know. Um, and that's kind of how I try to I try to hunt and I try to live that way. You know, it's like I don't want to I don't want to leave with with regrets and stones left unturned, you know. And so you know, carpe diem. I want to seize every opportunity I can while I can, you know. And if that means I got to do some things that are going to make me uncomfortable, where I'm going to fail, then so be it. You know, because that hunt that I had where that where we just didn't get the didn't get to release an arrow, it was that hunt that I was like, I'm at the right spot. I'm staying here. I think I know what they want to do. There's another little piece when we drove by, I found like a piece of private that was adjacent to it. We actually almost hit a big like a big ten point. I don't know what he scored when we were driving out that night near there. And I was like, Man, I was like and then we saw some does in this uh private piece on in like a cut cornfield, and I was like, Man, I bet you they're all kind of hanging up in this end close to this. So I went in the next morning blind set up on the ground, had a doe at five yards in a ghillie jacket. I didn't have anything. I was sitting in CRP in a ghillie jacket and that was it. Like just blending in. And that was when I saw, you know, somewhere between a mid one forties, 150 inch deer come through. And that was what I got drawn back on. I snort wheezed him in off of a scrape. He came my down one side. I just didn't have enough wind. There was a little drop that he went to, to kind of check my wind and I'm sure my thermals were just dropping into there and it was supposed to be a seven mile per hour wind that day. And we didn't have a stitch of wind. And all I needed was that seven to give me a little boost. And I was stuck and he got behind this piece of brush as a full draw. I could see the tips of his tines. I could see the tips of, tip of his nose in the front of his feet. And that was it. And he just stopped and wouldn't move any further. And he just turned around and walked away, you know, but it was that experience the day prior where I was like, I'm in the right spot. I just need to work the spot. You know, I was like, I know we're in the, I'm in the, I'm in the chips now I'm in the game. You know, it's the fourth quarter. It was like the next to last day. <laughs> like literally it's the fourth quarter. I just need the ball in my hand with a minute left and I'm going to go, going to go give it hell and see what happens. Did you take that ghillie suit with you or did you buy that out there? No, no, I took it with me because okay. I do hunt from the ground a little bit like the past, probably, I guess, two years, whether it was in Pennsylvania or okay. uh, Missouri, I did a little bit of hunting from the ground in certain setups, you know, uh, depending on what the, what the setup kind of looked like you know the one spot was just everything was covered in poison ivy and i'm allergic to poison ivy so i wasn't climbing a tree (laughs) i wasn't climbing a tree there so i just hunted off the ground and tucked in behind some down trees um but yeah that's been something new that i've tried to add to my to my repertoire you know it's just 
get comfortable hunting on the ground. Um, that way if a hunt calls for it, it's like, I'm comfortable doing it, you know, yeah. cause there's so many subtleties that you don't think about until you force to hunt on the ground exclusively for a stretch of time. Yeah. Just like how you play the shadows, how you move, how you walk, try to sound like a deer because you're constantly, you know, you're not constantly moving, but you're moving pretty frequently. When do you draw? What's your wind doing? Like you're not cheating the wind when you're on the ground, when you're in a, in a tree, you can certainly get the advantages from the height, you know, what you might be able to blow out of their head or wherever they're going to come in. But you got to be so, so much more exacting when you're on the ground. Cause you just, there's, there's just literally zero margin for error on the ground. Um, and I learned those, I learned those lessons this year pretty in a, in a tough way. <laughs> I was going to ask this question a while ago when we were talking about it. Is there a deer, is there a white-tailed deer in the, all the lower 48? Uh, I would man, I that's a good question. I think I when you know. get out West, I like think South Dakota, more, North Dakota, places like that may not have them. South Dakota's low. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they, they there's more deer in South Dakota. Than I believe they are in Illinois. <laughs> yeah. I, like the only places I'm thinking is like when you get to like Arizona, New Mexico and stuff that's like that, what, I know they got coos deer yeah. out there. I just don't know about whitetails in that habitat I'm, i forgot like, you're talking know, about like, seeing all those deer out yeah there. that's that's what i was that's what i was asking if they if they, if they were i was actually going if they were a deer in every state um but i, I don't know if they're in hawaii or alaska either i would uh, think maybe alaska, alaska has uh i know they got black because i hunted black tail in alaska i don't know about i don't know about white tail because when you get out on the west coast you start getting you start getting black tail and then when you get down to like the the south past like probably texas i want to say you start says, getting into like coos deer land yeah it yeah. says whitetail deer are found in every state in the u.s except alaska and in only small parts of utah nevada and california okay so Black tail I, I, I was going to give you a piece of advice too and, and only our local people will know this but if you try to come to public land in georgia do not go to mcgraw ford wma because <laughs> you will not you will have no luck <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'd be better off. You'd be better off stay, hunting in California. Stay, yeah, stay south of Atlanta. If that's stay south of Atlanta. Yeah, stay south of Atlanta. Nice, nice. Yeah. yeah, I want to get down south to do some hunting. I just had a buddy on uh, from Alabama. That's one place I actually want to go to in the south is Alabama, just because they you can catch the rut to like through February. Yeah, and yeah I just Alabama is a too. state that's really came on too for big mature deer. I that's mean, right. they've they've got some mm -hmm. giants they're getting hammered. And Georgia, that's you know. We talk so much crap mm -hmm. on Georgia because of where we live. I mean, yeah. you're not right. if you're talking the run of the mill worst part of the state to hunt in north of us is where it is. From where we live and south, which is about 50 miles from Atlanta and south, you probably have got some of the best whites. I mean, hunting. we're we're 45 minutes from where all those seek one guys are killing deer in Atlanta. Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're we're right here, but just 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 barely this far north from Atlanta, we don't have. I mean, you you might hear one ever so often, but this very very rare. Right. Hard to kill, yeah. hard to kill deer. I mean, they're they're very hard and they're very they're very like you said. If you break a stick in the wrong place, I hunted a deer, or I had a deer on camera every single day all summer, fall. Got here and I made a decision to shoot a smaller deer on opening day. Hit him high, didn't find him. Nick and I tracked him for a thousand yards. I did not get another trail camera picture of that mature buck until late November, and mm -hmm. then he got killed last week. So I ain't gonna talk about that no more. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, there's, there's... we we get a month we get a month of bow season here in Georgia, 
and then it okay. just turns into gun season. Five, so. five weeks, and then five, a week yeah. of muzzleloader, and then it turns into three and a half months of rifle season. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah and you get 12 here, deer, so they're blasting. Yeah, geez. 10 yeah, does, two bucks. <clears throat> we're, we're a one-buck state. Um, now, depending on where you live, you can get multiple doe tags. Like where I live, I can get multiple doe tags just because I'm in a special regs unit because you know, I live near a metro area. Um, but we're a one, we're a one buck state and, uh, the better, you know, it's Pennsylvania is one of those places. I hate even, I shouldn't even say it. Cause I've said it a couple of times on my show and I'm like, I need to stop saying this because <laughs> people are going to start coming here because it, the deer have got gotten better. Um, just, just in general, like from growing up in PA and knowing what I had seen growing up, like if you saw a rack buck growing up, like that was something to say, mm-hmm. you know, and now, you know, especially, you know, if you're out in around Pittsburgh and the Allegheny mountains and stuff like that, like there's Boone and Crockett deer in those woods, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? For sure. We've heard you know, that know, before. Yeah. I've had buddies who've, you know, my one buddy, his dad killed a Boone and Crockett deer that he's been hunting for four years in the Alleghenies this year, you know? And, um, but it's not know, easy team, hunting. No, it's mountain terrain. You know, it's, it's big woods, big country, you know, the Allegheny mountains, it's, a, it's, I mean, you're talking like a million plus acres of, 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 of wild, of just wilderness. It's a, it's, it's a, it's legitimately a wilderness area. So it'd be like comparable to like the Adirondacks or something like that, you know, in the place that I'm hunting, you know, close to where I live, it's a couple hours away. Again, like you're getting into like mountain country and, you know, big open hardwoods timber and, you know, and I'll I'll send you some photos of, of some stuff that I've found in there, but, you know, I have, if they made it, you know, I had three deer. One was definitely in the sixties. Um, he came on later, big mature deer and, um, got, got some people that had walked by that camera a couple times. And once that happened, he never showed up again. There's another one who was, I don't know. I think he was a nine point. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he was probably in the fifties. Um, I would say, um, and then there's another one that had a double or had a split, uh, both of his G twos were split. Um, and is just a freak. And he was probably in his sixties this year too. And if they made it, um, there was another one that I didn't find. I had him in the summer and he was probably in the fifties, but I never saw him again after he went hard horned, but assuming all three of those deer live. And plus that other one that was in the fifties, like I would say out of, there's probably at least two, if not three that that'll push Boone and Crockett next year, Wow, you know, that I, that I know of, you know what I mean? And that's me spending, I scouted for, three days last winter and probably three days in the spring slash summer, you know, and then hunted it like two days, you know, one day in the fall this year and hung some additional cameras. And then I hunted it still hunted it slash scouted two days in the late season this year. Have and you been so, able to chase any elk up there in Pennsylvania yet? No, I mean, that's a pretty limited draw. I mean, that's like the, you know, it's funny because people that aren't from PA, you know, most people that aren't from PA, if, if they're diehard elk hunters, they know, but like you want to talk about Magnum bulls, like sort of Pennsylvania, heard. I think, has the world record that was shot, like, I want to say two years ago for a bull elk. Like, yeah. just what? Four- I ain't even never even heard that. I yeah. saw, I've seen elk there, but I had never heard that there was giants. Oh, uh, magnums. Like, like, I think, I'm pretty sure the world record was in PA, like, two years ago. I want to say it was, like, 400 and something. God like, almighty. I mean, just, like, freakishly, freakishly big. Like, well, I, they, I saw Runella saw one when he was in his hunt with Flintlock in PA, and I was like, that's a damn elk. I didn't even know there was elk here, and now you're saying there's a world record. Holy cow. Yeah, there's magnets. Now, the reason is is because they only, I mean, I want to say this year they gave out the most amount of archery tags 
you know, I don't have the numbers to be exact, but I want to say there isn't any more than maybe 20 archery tags for bulls a year. And there might be, that might be gun and, you know, archery combined, yeah. you know, and then maybe a hundred, a hundred cow tags. Do you put you know, in for year. it? Yeah. Well, I don't put in for it. I buy, I buy points every year. Yeah. Um, eventually I'll start trying to, trying to draw. Um, I would, I would love to do it. I'm going to Idaho this year for elk. Um, okay. so we'll see. I've never been there before either. So, um, I'm going there turkey hunting this year. Are you? Yeah. Nice. Yep. Nice. Yeah. I'm, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't just a little nervous cause it's the, it'll be the first time that I've gone hunting and, and, uh, like backcountry camping somewhere that I am going to be in Grizz, Grizz country. Cause the part that I'm going to be hunting is like Northern uh, Idaho. Okay. Um, so it's a pretty heavy grizzly population. So you're going to be pretty close area. to Canada then, correct? I'm going to be in the panhandle is where I'm going to be. So not like the complete tippy top of, uh, of Idaho, but yeah. you know, far enough where they got enough grizz there to make you, make you pucker. I think we're going to be, we're going to be in part of the panhandle. I think we're going to be like right there where Oregon and Washington come together. Mm-hmm. I forget the name of that town that we're going to stay in. Yeah. I mean, anyway. my buddy that I'm meeting up with out there lives in Coeur d'Alene is okay. where he, is where he lives. Okay. Um, so that's where I'm going to be. It's actually Troy Pottinger, I think lives around there somewhere too. What month is that you're going? Uh, I mean, it'll be end of August, beginning of September. I just don't, they, they haven't released the season dates yet. Um, but I guess it's sec, uh, it's season a, cause they break it up into season a B seasons or whatever for bow versus gun and what weeks you can hunt and stuff like that. It's really kind of weird. Um, to a flatlander, it's weird, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah. I think <laughs> the like wolves are really bad out there too. Uh, yeah. I've heard that. Um, you know, again, like I said, like I got a buddy who lives there. Um, I think, uh, I think that certainly a few years ago, it was really, really bad from what, you know, he's kind of gathered and what he as a local kind of explains to me is that it's not as bad as what, uh, some people want to make it out to be necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they've, I think they've put some things in place to kind of manage some of the predation, you know, over the past couple of years after they got hit pretty hard. Yeah. Um, you know, he saw some good bulls, some good bulls last year, and um, it was his first year living out there. So he wasn't trying real hard because he didn't have a tag. He was just basically going out scouting, kind of checking stuff out, and uh, ran into some ran into some good bulls. So, um, fingers crossed. We'll see if we can't can't knock one knock one down. So now I don't know what what my uh, whitetail state's going to be because I'm doing that, and I'm on the fence as to whether or not I'm just going to spend the whole whitetail season in Pennsylvania this year because I haven't done that in a while. Or I kind of really want to go back to Kansas and redeem myself. So we'll, we'll see. I think I'm going to put in for the Kansas tag. If I get it, I'm going to go. Um, if not, then I think I might just uh, hang out in PA for, for the whitetail season. How many points you got for Iowa? Uh, this year, I'll buy my third one this year. So maybe next year I'll draw okay. again. Okay. But yeah, I mean, that's a place I put in. I put in for points there every year. I'll go as many times as my body will let me. And you've already so killed just, there? Yep. Oh, okay. Killed there. Okay. Um, it's a uh, uh, that was a wild, a wild hunt, man. It was 16 days solo, so I, I wasn't there with anybody. Um, and uh, I had gone out because a buddy of mine lives in the general area where I was hunting, and I'd gone out and I scouted for three days in March and shed hunted, and um, but I ended up hunting in an area I'd never scouted before, um, and uh, saw a really good buck. I don't think on like day six on this scrape line like mid one mid one forties, eight points. So big eight points. Yeah. And 
clean missed him at 28 yards, just like <laughs> got shook and just missed him, you know, um, was hell bent on finding that deer. Cause it, it, it ticked me off and it's the rut. So like the chances of finding a buck during the rut that you've missed, like finding a needle in a haystack, I ended up finding him again, you know, had him at 28 yards again, missed him again. This time I clipped a small piece of brush and just knocked my arrow in the dirt and missed him again. So I missed him twice. Yeah. <laughs> and then at a completely different spot, like I caught up to him in like a different area, like in, and refound him. And then, um, I set up for him like two days later in another area and I had an encounter with him. And this time he smelled me. He caught my, caught my wind and that was it. Like I didn't see him again. And I only had two days left at that point. Um, you know, I saw like, it was the full experience, man. I was rattling bucks in, I was snort wheezing them in. It was crazy. Like I saw more bucks on, I saw more bucks than does. Like I would see five bucks to every one doe that I would see while I was there. Um, and I saw, I mean, that big, you know, mid one forties, eight point that I missed. We had, I had one on camera cause my buddy was running cameras in, in one area that you know, I pulled the camera when I was hunting that area and, and, and checked it for him. And there was like a hundred and like, I mean, he was 150 if he wasn't 160, eight point, just giant. Like I'd never seen like an eight point that big before in my life. Like it was just, it was ridiculous. And then I did have my classic Iowa encounter with like a 180 inch, just Magnum. But I was walking through a CRP field and jumped him out of a draw. So I wasn't any closer than like, 50, 60 yards. I didn't even know it was there. You know, it was just dumb luck, but mm-hmm. still to see that size of an animal was just, that's what you go to Iowa for is to see something like that. Right. And, uh, it was like the last two days and I missed that deer. That's that second time. And they winded me finally and the game was over. So I ended up just scouting and every day was basically, I hunted a new spot. Like I would hunt, uh, you know, basically I would go in, in the morning, like in gray light and I would scout all day and find a setup and find hot sign. And I'd set up on it and I'd hunt that evening there you know and i'd let my stuff in the tree then i'd come back and hunt that morning as long as i had a good wind for that spot and then around 11 30 noon one o'clock depending if i was seeing any movement or not or just a gut feeling i would get down and i would just walk until i found fresh sign again that seemed to be like in a decent spot that i wanted to set up in, and i would hang and i'd hunt again you know and i'd do that and come back the next morning that was basically how i hunted the whole trip which is every day i would hunt just move walk and for whitetail hunting i was doing like I don't know, anywhere from five to maybe seven miles in a day. You know what I mean? Just scouting and, and hunting, you know, and for whitetail hunting, that's, that's moving. Now, some days it'd be like five or four or whatever. I think the most I did was like seven the one day. And that was like, I set up at the end of the day just to set up because <laughs> it was getting dark, you know? Yeah. Um, and then the next, the last day I kind of scouted these couple ridges out and I found like this scrape line. I found a bed. Um, I found some rubs and I just kind of kept following them. And it led me to like this close to where I actually missed that big deer the second time. It was actually back off this, like it was in like this little draw where I missed him. And there was like a little bit of a cedar thicket back on this point that dropped down into this body of water. And so I was scouting the backside of those ridges and that's where I found those beds. And I hopped up on this ridge, like kind of off the, basically off the side of the, the one side of the draw. And, um, uh, I ended up kicking a buck out of a bed that was bedded in those cedars. And I was like, all right. I was like, you know what? I'm going to try the old Andre DeQuisto bump and dump. <laughs> I'm going to, I want to kick him out of here and I'm going to set up and see if he, see if he comes back. Well, he never came back, but I knew there were a set of scrapes that was maybe like hundred, 150 yards out in front of me. And I had assumed these deer were probably hitting these scrapes and then using that, that draw and using the thermals to kind of use those, those draws to kind of move around these ridges and stuff. And so, and I'd seen that big buck that was in there that I'd missed the second time. And I saw like another deer that was a little further, I guess, to like my, I guess to my West, you know, a doe that was kind of up in there. So I knew there were a couple of does around. 
And after I jumped that buck out, I, I saw a young buck kind of come in off that scrape and read the script. There was a trail that kind of read, that ran right down, like off the edge of this, this draw. And there was a triple trunk tree that I could get in between and kind of hide myself. And I was only maybe 10 feet off the ground. And I was feeling like, man, where that buck was bedded and where that, where that young buck came through, I was like, that's the script. I was like, if they're just kind of cruising and scent checking, hitting those scrapes and coming through here, I was like, this is, this will be a money spot. I was like, cause if I got the right wind, I was like, they're going to have to either come in on that trail or they're going to have to use this draw where it's naked and expose themselves. They're not going to want to do that. They're going to stay up in the cedar thicket and use that and use that top to come through. And so that was my plan. That's where I set up the next day. I had kind of a, the deer were going to be coming from the North and I had almost like a straight South wind and it was just off just enough. And I got in there early. Like I always heard, you know, talking to like Dan Enfalt and stuff like that, like he'll go in and set up on a spot with good access where you're not blowing things out with your wind for your access, but he's setting up for the spot for the wind to be right. Whenever he thinks the deer is going to come through, not for the wind to be right when he gets there necessarily. Right. So if I need a South wind, you know, cause I, I usually try to set up my setups to where I'm giving the deer the wind. I try to give them the advantage as much as I can and, and really kind of run a razor's edge or kind of put myself in harm's way as much as I can, because that gives the deer the confidence to think that he's safe in a spot, right? If it's, if the, if the, if the wind is constantly in my favor, then the chances of a mature deer making a mistake and, and coming through without being able to smell what's in front of them is not, it's, it's, it's not going to happen a lot. Certainly deer tailwind, but I think they typically tailwind in areas that they feel really, really comfortable in, not areas where they're unfamiliar with, you know? Um, so I knew, I knew I needed some type of South wind and I had basically a South wind. And when I got into the tree, it was blowing dead where the deer was going to come from, you know? And I was watching the weather and as the day was going, I knew it was going to change from a South, from a straight South, basically it was going to start kicking just ever so slightly Southwest. You know what I mean? I was going to get, you know, if he's coming in this way straight onto me, I'm going to start just shaving at the edge just ever so slightly where it's going to start to miss him a little bit. And I'm dropping milkweed and I'm watching, I'm watching. And like most of the day it's blowing right to where that deer is going to want to walk through. And then the wind starts switching, starts switching, starts switching. And at four 30, he walked down that trail just like I drew it up. <laughs> wind in his face had no clue I was there. I mean, I dropped milkweed and it was like before he walked in and it might've been landing like 10 feet to the right of where he was going to walk through or where he walked through. I had him at 16 yards broadside and double lunged him and he went 40 yards and piled up. And it was just, you know, playing that wind on a razor's edge, knowing also that I was set up on the side of this draw. And as the evening was coming and the sun was going down, I was going to start to get just a little bit of a thermal suck down toward that draw a little bit. And it was going to pull my wind and help me cheat my wind just ever so slightly that much more than the wind as it was shifting. And so it was just one of those places where, and that was like going back to what I was saying about like having analogs and kind of being able to see things that you've seen before and go like, this is going to work here. That was one of those instances where, you know, on that trip, I felt like I got an ed, like a, like a master's course in, in, in deer hunting because I was by myself. All I was doing was hunting just every day was learning something new, learning something new. And that trip there was really the thing that helped me understand and to more confidently play the wind. Like once that trip was over, like, I was like, I got it now. I get it. <laughs> I understand how this has to work, you know? And so now when I set up, it's like, I'm much more confident in my setups and knowing, you know, how much I can cheat the wind here, how much thermal is going to help me in certain instances. If I'm close to water, if I'm not close to water, if I'm sitting on the edge of like a cut, where the wind's going to kind of roll over and then want to vacuum back because it's hitting an open area, like all things like that, that you just, you pick up from doing it. 
you know, and that was one of those instances where it was, I was like, okay, I get it now. Like I, I understand how I need to, how I need to cheat the wind. That's good, man. You want it. That's, that's what yeah. it's all about right there. Yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, I felt like up until then I was, I would, I would get lucky, you know, and now on my setups, whenever I have good encounters or stick a deer or whatever, it's like, I know it's because I'm, I set up, I'm set up correctly. Yeah. You know, and that's the biggest thing. And it wasn't because I set up wrong other times necessarily, but it's just, it's the confident to know. And you have to be comfortable with, you're going to, you got to give you got to give something up to get something. You know what I mean? It's like, you never have it a hundred percent, you know, so you have to walk into certain setups knowing that deer are going to come from here. I got to give this up. You know what I mean? If deer come from there, then I just have to be okay with like giving that, giving that piece up. I'm going to set up to hunt the area that I think deer are going to come from. That's right. And what tells me that is my scouting experience and just, just doing it. But you're also okay with going out to Kansas for two weeks and getting your butt whooped because it makes you want it more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's like I had deer show up for me from odd angles. Like when I set up on the ground for that deer where I had, went to full draw on and like, I thought I was in a good spot. I was like, there won't be anything come from behind me. The first thing that happened was at daybreak, I had a dope five yards standing right behind me. Like, yeah, I'm in a ghillie jacket. I can hear her breathing. I'm just yeah. <laughs> sitting there on my haunches. Like, I'm just like, for the love of God, just move off, move on. <laughs> like, <laughs> Just leave me alone. That's enough. what man, yeah. that's what happened to me and him early season. He was filming me and waiting on the buck to come in in front of me and it come in behind us. And uh, yeah. we didn't get a shot on it. But, Clint, as we're getting winding down here, man, I'm going to hit you with those uh, four questions that um, I had mentioned, I'd mentioned earlier, and you can make it as long or short as you want to. Um, cool. What would be the perfect day in the woods for you? Oh, man. Um, let's see. I'm uh, waking up in the, in the DIY trailer that I built. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in some random place. Um, Cold, crisp morning. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like the picture that I had when we, when we, the first morning I woke up in Kansas, which is just like the sun rising over the prairie. Yeah. Like it, it, it didn't get any better than that. And sometimes it's, you don't even have to be in the timber. That's right. You know, it's just, you know, seeing, uh, seeing the, the masterpiece that stands bef- before you every single day. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing. It's just, I have gratitude for that. Like that's I right. don't need any more than that in those, in those situations. That's right. I had went back to um, – I'm putting this little slideshow together. And I was in there editing the other day. And, and I always ask two questions at the end. But I was like, you know what, I'm going to add two more. And we recently had um, T-Bone on. And him and his he, – he was talking about him and his buddy had been riding around one day going to lunch. And, and they got to talking. What was the perfect day? His was more of what's the perfect day it consists of. But I thought, why not? What What's the perfect day in the woods for people? So – I'm going to start using that in my arsenal for everybody. But um, yeah. how can we better? How can we be better stewards of the land with the resources we have? Wow, that one's a, that's a loaded one. There, you could go a lot. You yeah, and, go a lot of different ways. Yeah, and and I guess it could pertain to you know any platform we may have. What what can we do better? Yeah, I think, man. As as far as the resources go, I think we just have to. Um, two things come to mind. I think we have to be grateful for the resources that we have and respect the fact that we need to take an active role in making sure that, that they are managed appropriately um, are abundant for those that are going to, those that are going to come after us. 
I think that that's the, I, I think that that's the one, the one thing when we're talking about resources specifically, I, I think, and it's kind of like a, a very broad kind of swooping kind of answer, a very kind of broad answer. I think the other thing that we need to do is, is to listen. I think to eat, not just each other as hunters, but I think truly listen and understand even those that oppose us. Because I think whether you're talking about hunting or you're talking about the world in general right now, man, there is a lot of talking and not a lot of listening. And if you look back and on anything bad that that ever happens, there's always more talk than there is listening, listening. It's being empathetic. You might not agree with how someone wants to do something or how they want to manage a resource or how they want to hunt or what, what kind of, you know, what kind of weapon they want to use for take, you know, or, you know, what political party they support or whatever the case is. But we have this ability that is uncommon in any other mammal and that's to have empathy. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with, but it's the willingness to try to understand. And I think that if we just pause for a moment and put our own desires aside and thought about it from the perspective of let me understand why this person feels this way. Cause it's valid. They have a feeling it's coming from somewhere. If I'm going to be part of the solution, I need to understand it. If we took that approach to more things just in general in the world, I think that we'd be in a lot better place. And I think it would be helpful when we talk about managing our resources and, and when we talk about how we manage ourselves as a hunting community. Well, this question here may spin right off of that a little bit, but <laughs> um, what is one piece of advice you'd give the listeners? It could just be general hunting, anything. Um, man, life is what you make of it. You know, there's a lot of reasons to to throw in the towel, or you know, this state sucks, or <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, you know. Um, but you know, I can't never did anything. That was what my wrestling coach used to always tell me. Yeah, that's right. Or he, or he would, he would say, whether you, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. You know, um, that's a great messenger quote there. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, and, and, and so just, you know, grab the brass ring, man. There, there's nobody, there's nobody telling you what you can or can't do or can or can't be, or, I mean, that's up to you. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're going to achieve whatever that goal is. That's not guaranteed in life. That's right. Um, but what I can guarantee you is, is that if you make that effort, the rewards that you receive aside from maybe attaining that goal are going to be more than the sum of that goal itself. Like hundred percent, you know, and I, and I believe that I think for all the deer that I've not killed, the things that I've gained by trying to far outweigh the goal of killing that deer hundred percent. That's right. And lastly, man, what are you most thankful for? Oh man. Um, most thankful for my health. Yeah. You know, uh, this kind of hoity toity uh, or, or foofy, if you will, a little hippy dippy, maybe it might be one way to say it. But, uh, every morning I get up and the first thing I do before I get out of bed is I, I leave my eyes closed and I kind of cross my legs in a certain position and I lay my hands on my stomach to kind of feel my breath. And I recite in my head over and over the, the, the three to five things that day that I'm, that I'm grateful for before I get out of bed. I try to start every day with gratitude. And one of the ones that is always in that list is my health. You know, I'm thankful that I have a body that allows me to do hard things. 
um, because those hard things that I get to do in life for the, is the foundation of my happiness. Essentially, it allows me the, the ability to, to build myself up, to be a good father, to be a good husband, you know, to be a, a good employee when I need to be, you know, to be a good hunter and the things that I enjoy when I need to be. Um, and hopefully it will allow me to be all those things for, for a long period of time. You know, there's going to come a day where my body's going to fail me probably far before my mind will. Um, and I'm cognizant of that. So I make every effort as possible to try to take care of that. That way I can still enjoy the things I like to do now. My goal, when I see my chiropractor and he gives me my adjustments, he was like, what's your goal? When I started seeing him, I was like, to be able to do all the things I'm doing now when I'm 60. Like, that's my goal, you know? Um, and so it's, you know, be grateful for your health, work on your health and have a plan for it. And uh, don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something. Great answer, man. Uh, Clint, it's been, a, it's been an honor to have you on here, man. I enjoy your podcast. I, I, I catch it every week. Um, I think we missed the episode today, right? Clint? Uh, no, tomorrow. One oh. Out, I think. Oh, I thought it was Tuesdays. No, it's, it's Wednesday. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Wednesday, I thought it was Tuesdays. This was my buddy. This one that's coming up this week as we're recording this, this was my buddy Corey from Iowa. He and oh, I ran okay. into each other when I was in Iowa in a parking lot. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so if, if anybody, leave. if anybody hasn't go check him out, it's a uh, truth from the stand. Uh, great content. You've been doing it for quite a while and, um, you've done several other ones over wired, wired to hunt. And, uh, man, I really do appreciate you coming on here, taking the time. I know it was kind of going back and forth. It was hunting season and we try to stay within the seasons cause now we're about to shift to Turkey season and mm-hmm. poor old Alex won't have nothing to talk about. <laughs> right? Well, you and I are in the same boat, man. <laughs> it, it won't be, it won't be without uh finding something. I'm sure I'll find something for him to chat about, but tonight, I mean, I've, you, you made an interesting point, um, as as Nick said, listening is key in a lot of things that we do. And tonight I found myself listening a lot more than I did talking. And I, I wanted to do that tonight more so because I feel like your empathy and, and the uh, philosophical approach that you bring to the to the outdoors is something I love to hear because it goes almost back to an old school nature. And you may not be a turkey hunter just like I'm not, but those traditional values and that philosophical approach that you that you take in the outdoors, I think it would make you and I more more inept to be great turkey hunters, because those traditional values and the way that you approach them, to me, that's missing in today's society. And and I really enjoy your show for that reason, and more so, I enjoy the conversation with you tonight. I found myself listening way more and in. in tuning in those thoughts that that don't necessarily come out in words which is hard for me because you like to, you like to talk like I do you you talk a lot and so do I and tonight I, I wanted to listen and I made it an approach because it was an honor and a privilege to listen to you speak um, and I, I can promise you we'll be doing this again it may not be on a show but you, you and I are going to have to hook up and, and have some conversations because I feel like uh feel like we could have some very good ones and as nick said if you're not already following along the truth from the stand go back he's got 260 something episodes i believe you've done or something like that yeah you might find two or three good ones in there but yeah something like that (laughs) no there's several good ones i've went back i'll go back through and pick like 80 or you know 91 or whatever just to find one and and today i found myself doing that again going all the way back to the first episode you did and i think it was in 2016 when that dropped and Mm-hmm. It gave uh, it gave me a little bit of of hope that 
hopefully five years from now, Nick and I are sitting here having a conversation with someone that said, Hey, you guys started in 2020 and, and gave it a, gave it a good thing. And, and you've done a very good job at it. And like I said, keep doing what you're doing because as a steward for the outdoors, you are a, you are a lot that needs to be here. And, and I can't thank you enough. I appreciate it guys. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you having me on, um, introducing me to your, uh, to, uh, to your audience and, um, you know, I'll try to do more listening too in the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, we appreciate Clint Campbell for coming on and being with us tonight. It's been indeed an honor and a privilege to have him here. And if you're not already follow along with him on all his social media, um, he's big over on Instagram. He's got some stuff going on there. You can follow along on YouTube as well. He's got some pretty cool videos and go check out that trailer video. It's one of the coolest, uh, DIY public land hunting trailers you could ask to see. He's got some neat stuff there and, uh, if you're not already listening to him, please do. So for everybody here at Talk About It Outdoors, we want to thank you for being with us again tonight. Come back and be with us again when you can. And remember, smile as you go. Don't forget, mount the memories. <laughs>